Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On tonight's show, I have a very special guest. His name is Drew Hurst Beeson. And in 2020, he published a book, which I just completed this morning. Title of that book is Paratrooper of Fortune. The story of Ted B. Braden, Vietnam commando, CIA operative, Congo mercenary, and just maybe D.B. Cooper. And he's also the other, uh, an author of other books. Another one is Citing in on the Zodiac Killer, Unmasking America's Most Puzzling Unsolved Murders. Also, I think there are some uh, fiction books, The Cloak of the Brethren and Asleep in Hell. And he also hosts a true crime pair YouTube channel. What's the name of your YouTube channel? It just goes by my name. It's Drew Beeson. Drew Beeson, gotcha. B-E-E-S-O-N. So, Correct. Drew, thanks for uh, being on the show. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on, William. Cool. Well, for people who don't know of your background, can you talk a little bit about it and what led you to this very interesting book about the legendary D.B. Cooper mystery? Well, I've always liked all things uh, concerning Unsolved Mysteries. Actually, the TV show Unsolved Mysteries that was hosted by the great Robert Stack was a big influence on me as well as many others. And I always liked cases that that weren't solved and uh, the mystery behind them. And this case was no different. This was the case of uh, D.B. Cooper, who jumped out of an airplane in 1971 with $200,000 in $20 bills strapped to his body. So as soon as I learned that story, I was I was hooked. I mean, that guy was a legend to me. And I can't remember exactly how old I was at the time when that show came on. I was thinking probably uh, something when I in my 20s, but uh, it stuck with me ever since. Gotcha. And so what... Uh... So the it was unsolved mysteries, but what tell people who may not know the story of DB Cooper what the whole background or the details around this uh, daring robbery or skyjacking was as it was called. What what were the details around it? Well, the details were, and it was kind of a, a, a first of its kind type of crime. It was you know, called a skyjacking, uh, which is a hijacking an airplane for money, and it was a little different than anything that ever happened before. Of course, well in uh, on the eve of Thanksgiving, on November 24th, 1971, a man uh, wearing a tie and uh, an overcoat and carrying a briefcase was calmly walking through uh, the, the airport in Portland, Oregon, and he bought a $20 ticket to Seattle, just a short flight north of Seattle, and he calmly boarded the plane. It was uh, Northwest Orient's Flight 305, and he uh, boarded the plane. He was the last passenger on. He took, took a seat in the back. And uh, before the plane took off, he asked one of the stewardess, he says, uh, Miss, I have something for you. And he and he, uh, he handed her a note and she thought he was the, the stewardess thought he was just flirting with her. And he says, Miss, I really need you to read that note. So she opened up the note and it says, uh, Miss, I have a bomb and I'd like you to sit next to me. So he finally got her attention um, and uh, she wound up uh sitting next to him and uh, he gave her her demands and she took it up to the cockpit to the captain. And it, you know, it, it said, you know, I, you know, he's got a bomb and a briefcase. He's going to blow us up if we don't meet his demands. And those demands were uh, four parachutes, two front shoots, two back shoots and uh, $200,000 in cash. Uh, so they, they quickly met, met his demands. They didn't want to take any chances. So uh plane takes off to, towards Seattle and uh, this all starts to unfold. And uh, as soon as the plane lands um, from Portland in, in Seattle, uh, they bring the money to, to, the, uh, to the hijacker. And uh, all the passengers get off except for uh, a man later is going to be, become known as D.B. Cooper. He actually, when he bought the ticket, he gave the name Dan Cooper. 
DB Cooper was actually a media screw up because they were immediately looking for uh, someone with a last name Cooper. And someone uh, said there's a DB Cooper here that lives in you know the area. So that's just that someone overheard that. So that name became legend. But he always went under the name Dan Cooper when he bought the ticket. So DB was just a really a media screw up that stuck. Uh, so anyway, all the passengers get off. He's still on the plane. They bring on the cash. It was uh, in $20 bills as he had requested. They brought him two front parachutes and two back parachutes. Well, obviously, the plane is to jump out of the plane with the money, and, and uh, they've all figured this out by then. So um, the, the plane takes off, and D.B. Cooper, um, you know, they, they have some negotiations. Well, you know, first, before the, the, the plane took off, this is very important, from, uh, from Portland, D.B. Cooper demanded that they left down the, the rear aft stair, and this was a, a, a Boeing 727 uh, jet. And it was one of the only ones that had what they call a rare aft stair where the staircase would come down in the middle and you could either board the plane or exit the plane by that by that staircase. It wasn't used that often. What was special, though, is D.B. Cooper knew that that jet could take off with that stair in the staircase in the down position. The pilots didn't even know this, but D.B. Cooper did. And there was some uh, arguing back and forth with Cooper and the pilots. Uh, you know, he was demanding that the plane take off with that stair down. And they said, no, we're not going to do it. Not negotiable. So we finally gave in and they raised the staircase and the plane took off from from Portland. Uh, you know, soon after the plane was in flight, there were some more negotiations about how far they could get. He originally said he wanted to go to Mexico. They informed him that we don't have enough fuel to make it to, to Mexico. So they settled on Reno, Nevada. And um, not too long after the plane took off from Portland, uh, he sent the stewardess back up to the cabin. There was no one else but the two pilots and, and, the, and the flight crew left, and they were you know, all up in the front of the plane. Uh, D.B. Cooper starts to put on uh, one of the parachutes he was given. They did bring his money up, but they didn't bring it in the, the, the type of bag that he requested. So he immediately took out a pocket knife, started cutting the shroud lines to one of the parachutes he wasn't going to use, and he uh, began to, to uh, uh, tie it around his body in the uh, duffel bag that they brought it in. So uh, the way is a way to secure it to his body. It was probably about 40 pounds worth of $20 bills, which is extremely difficult to skydive with that kind of weight on you if you're not experienced at doing that. So uh, everybody goes up front. Now, at some point, uh, Tina Muckla, who spent the most time with Cooper, she was uh, the stewardess there, one of the one of the three, uh, walked, back in, but walked back to the back of the cabin and saw D.B. Cooper putting on one of the parachutes. And um, he, he sent her back up front. And uh, not too far, long later, there was what they called a pressure bump. And they thought that was Cooper getting the, the aft stair down. Actually, Tina Mucklow helped him to lower those aft stairs before he actually jumped. So she goes back up front. He's got the parachute on now. And at some point, they believe over Washington, uh, over the town named Ariel, they think he jumped out of the plane with all the money strapped to to his body. He was never seen again, uh, didn't leave the briefcase on the plane. The only thing he left was uh, some Raleigh filter tip cigarette butts, uh, the drink cup he was using, and a, and a black tie, a thin black JCPenney tie. Um, none of the, nothing that he jumped out of the plane was ever found again, uh, with the exception of $5,800 in $20 bills that was found in 1980 on the shore of a place called the Tina Bar outside of Vancouver, Washington, uh, a nine-year-old boy named Brian Ingram found $5,800 of D.B. Cooper's cash, and it was later verified to be part uh, D.B. Cooper's ransom money. Nothing else was ever found other than that $5,800, not the parachutes, and most of all, 
they never found DB Cooper. So it's, right. it remains a mystery to this day. And it was $200,000 at that time was a substantial amount of money. I think it's like about 1.2 million today. So it was definitely a significant uh, heist, but that the money was found across from Portland, right? So Vancouver, Washington is right across uh, the Columbia, River, River. Right. Columbia River. Right. So, um, and I mean, so somebody disappeared into the mist, never to be really be act, you never be to be caught by the police for sure. But what led you to this character of Ted B. Braden? Well, uh, you know, I kind of got had a resurgence getting back into to, to the DB Cooper case, listening to Coast to Coast AM. There was a guy that, that Coast to Coast would have on at least once a year for a while, and around the time of the anniversary of the Cooper jump. And he was an attorney named Galen Cook. And uh, he would come on coast to coast and talk about his suspect, a guy that was named William Gossett. He later uh, added, uh, changed his first name to Wolfgang. And uh, he was a really interesting suspect to me. And everything that, that Galen Cook said, he was a real articulate guy. And talking about this, this Gossett guy and how he had uh, survival training and all this stuff. And I just kind of became interested in, in Gossett as a suspect and just started looking into him a little bit more. And I was looking at some of the D.B. Cooper chat rooms where, you know, the real hardcore Cooperites, as they call them, get on there and talk and talk shop about who do they think D.B. Cooper is, who's a good suspect, who's a bad suspect, you know, people arguing over whose suspect is better, that kind of stuff. And I would never join these groups. I would just kind of be a voyeur in reading the things they said. And uh, one day I was reading one and there was a guy named Bruce Smith, who, who was uh, the grand poobah of the D.B. Cooper case. Uh, he was on the HBO special recently and uh, he wrote a book called D.B. Cooper and the FBI. And, uh, and it was Bruce Smith talking to another uh, a, a guy on the Cooper message board that went by the moniker Snowman. And they were talking about this other suspect named Ted Braden. And uh, immediately when I saw the name and what they were saying about this guy just immediately fascinated me. They were saying this was the pick of uh, U.S. Special Forces in Vietnam to be D.B. Cooper. And I thought, man, it's fascinating. This guy needs a, a, a closer look. And, uh, you know, these, these so uh, I didn't find him. They did. I don't know where they found him, I guess, because they would you know go around and, and if they ever encountered someone that was in Special Forces in Vietnam, the name Ted Braden would come up. They would say, who do you think was D.B. Cooper? Since, you know, it looks like it could have been a special forces type operation. And obviously the Vietnam war was still going on in 1971. And the answer they would always get back was Ted B. Braden. So I was hooked at that point and I made a mission to, to find out everything I could about this guy. And not only just as a D.B. Cooper suspect, but about Braden's life, because it was fascinating. This guy was a true super soldier he was uh, Rambo before we ever heard the name Rambo. Uh, you know, not this big bulky guy. I mean, he was this, uh, you know, he's about 5'8", almost 5'9", but he was really lean. You know, he was, uh, he was in his 40s already when he was in Vietnam. So he, uh, he was already, you know, kind of an older guy, but he was tougher than anybody. And uh, the more I dug into his background, the more I became fascinated with him. Well, he was he was what's interesting about him is he lied to get into World War Two when he was 14. So he was a by 1971. He was a very, very experienced uh, adventurer slash military guy. Right. Heavily, heavily. He was actually I think he just turned 16 when he joined to fight in World War Two. And uh, he was born in 1928, by the way, and he is deceased as far as we know. It's a, that's a little shrouded in mystery, but he was born in 1928, so he'd be probably mid-90s or so now. But uh, 
from what we know, he, he passed away in 2007 and he was cremated and the details are pretty sketchy there. He's not like, you know, he's not buried anywhere that shows or, uh, even some of his family members that I found, uh, don't even know that what really happened. I mean, I think his, uh, um, his third wife probably knew, but she had Alzheimer's and things like that. So that was a little shrouded in mystery, but no, he did. He did lie about his age and, and joined up to fight in world war two. And it's cause he kind of had a bad home life, uh, with his stepfather. He had a pretty, pretty rough relationship with. So I think he really just wanted to get out of the house and started with his life. So, uh, he catches the tail end of world war two and winds up, uh, fighting in the battle of the bulge and some of the, you know, the harder battles as a paratrooper, a member of the 101st airborne. And, uh, you know, he, he really, uh, saw some combat as a really young man over there. So yeah, like you said, he was already a hardened combat veteran before he was 18 and, right. uh, had an on and off, uh, getting in and out of the military there were, you know, for most of his career, he was a career military for the most part, uh, until he left Vietnam. Can you talk about how he got into Vietnam and what his experiences in Vietnam were? Sure. Uh, he went over to Vietnam at the beginning of 1965, so it was still pretty early. And Braden wound up wound up joining uh, a special forces group called uh, the Materials Assistance Command Vietnam Studies and Observations Group. And that was just called SOG for short. And that's a really... A uh, benign-sounding name for the black ops units in Vietnam. I mean, Mac V. Sog was the elite of special forces in Vietnam. These guys were the ones that went into Laos, and they would do their primary thing was to do wiretaps. Uh, the North, you know, uh, wiretap the North Vietnamese transmission lines and, and gather data. They had a, they had a machine they could hook up when they would make that wiretap, and it would it would uh, they would be able to record. Uh, messages that were obviously in North Vietnamese, they would have translated and they would know where certain generals would be really uh, highly valuable intel. But of course they were going into to Laos where we weren't supposed to be due to the Geneva convention. So uh, if they got caught in Laos, you were basically the, the American government would deny you were ever there. So you didn't have that added protection. Uh, so you had to be, you know, the toughest of the tough to want to do that assignment. They had a hundred percent casualty rate in, in the SOG unit uh, for just either you would at minimum be wounded, if not killed when you joined up for that unit. And also when the, you joined, they would tell you, you couldn't t- talk to anyone about uh, your activities or that you were even in that unit for 30 years or, or it'd be really serious stuff against you. You'd be court-martialed, uh, probably put in Leavenworth of you and told your wife or your girlfriend what you were doing in this unit. That's how uh, covert it was in Vietnam. And it was, you know, not declassified till many years later that we even knew what this group was or what they were doing in Vietnam. And, um, Braden was part of a team that was called team Arizona. They were all made up of small teams that were like eight to 10 members total. You would have three Americans and then you would have, uh, sometimes up to five or six, what they would call mountain yards or yards for short, which was the uh, mountain people, the indigenous fighters over there in Vietnam. And, right. uh, you would go in, you know, get, a, get a, uh, what they called over the fence, and uh, you would do all these operations like wiretaps. Uh, you would try to snatch prisoners. You would do, uh, I mean, all kinds of dirty stuff over there. You would try to find their weapons caches and sabotage their weapons. Really hardcore stuff. And it was actually, Braden was a um, what they called the one zero. That means you were a team leader of your unit in SOG. And he was part of uh, the first team that was did the first successful wiretap in, in Laos. 
his team carried out. So uh, really hardcore guy, hardcore stuff over there. He always got his team members out alive, although he was very unconventional. I mean, he took a lot of chances. Uh, his, uh, his assistant team lead, a guy named Jim Hetrick, I got to know very well and got the interview for the book, told me so many interesting stories about Ted Braden while he was in Vietnam. He actually killed a guy, uh, you know, a friendly force, a part of the, uh, the, uh, you know, the South Vietnamese army, which Braden just didn't like, didn't like those guys for whatever reason, even though you were fighting basically for the same team, Ted Braden just didn't like those guys for, for, I don't know why, but they just said he didn't. And he wound up killing one of them. And, um, they tried to draw him up, you know, on charges for that. And it went nowhere. I mean, quickly, they just basically, uh, uh, brushed it under the rug and acted like it never happened. So even in Vietnam, Ted Braden was being protected by a, a higher force, uh, someone higher, much higher up than him, uh, apparently liked him. And then they would, you know, cover up any, any, any of his bad doings would get covered up really quickly. And, uh, right. you know, didn't obviously- they have, didn't they have like, un- I think you wrote in there, like they just were kind of free for all. As they said, there was no limitations on rules of engagement. And another way to put that was uh, there is there were no rules of engagement for the for this type of unit. You know, in MACB SOG, you didn't really have a you know, you would have to somewhat take orders from a higher up, a colonel or a general. But very rarely, you know, these guys kind of did their own thing because it was so elite. And, uh, you know, they were just trusted to do what they did. And you were definitely not supposed to talk about it. But, yeah, there were no rules for of engagement. Uh, Braden liked it because he was a daredevil skydiver, probably the best skydiver that ever lived. And uh, he loved going over there when he got to Vietnam because he could uh, pull his ripcord under a thousand feet, which was suicide for most people. But he was such a accomplished skydiver and he could live on the edge. Uh, he would always get away with it. As a guy named Donald Duncan, Duncan said, who was a uh, special forces Vietnam, later became a real big uh, anti-war guy when he got back to the States, said that uh, Ted Braden had a secret death wish, but it, but it was coupled with the uh, amazing instincts of survival. And it's like something he'd never seen. It was just this guy could just do such daring things and always wind up living. And he was a special And didn't you guy. say that he ranked high on some kind of like cognitive tests too, right? So he kind of had a – he was also daring but also had relatively high intelligence, right? He had very high intelligence. It's what's called a GT score. And I've heard that called the general technical score. In the army, it's also called. I've also heard it called general trainability. But anyway, his score was 150, and that's like at the highest range that you can get. And you can kind of extrapolate IQ from that, which would have meant I don't know how it would be in a number of IQ, but it would mean you were on the very high end of IQ to score a 150 on a GT test, is what I was told. And uh, Braden certainly had that high level of intelligence combined with all these abilities to be able to uh, skydive and then, you know, just, just covert warfare. He had it all. Right. And so he was in Nam, but then he decided he wanted to, or supposedly go to the Congo, right? Right. He decided he wanted to become a mercenary because for Ted Braden, it was all about money. He never joined the military. Even when he went to fight in World War II, it was never about patriotism or anything else. It was just a way, in the beginning, just a way to get out of, you know, get out of his, you know, a bad home life. And what he discovered in the military was that he was a true super soldier. He had the ability to be a true super soldier. He just had that kind of genetic makeup to be a super soldier. And uh, he found what he was good at, which was number one was jumping out of an airplane under any kind of circumstances. 
uh, he was just the best at it. He was in a, a, a military jumping team called the Golden Arrows, where they would compete all around Europe. And uh, he would often win most of those competitions. He was just that good at jumping out of a plane. He won multiple competitions doing that. So, um, you know, going back to Vietnam, he was in a bar in Saigon where he would hang out a lot. And there was all kind of FBI types and CIA, mainly CIA types that would hang out there. And he was probably doing missions for them in Vietnam uh, that a lot of people didn't know about. And, uh, you know, people, he would tell the other guys in his unit, if you ever see me in, in Saigon or around, you don't know me because he was always running the black market and things like that. So uh, he's sitting in a bar and uh, it's called the Carville Bar in Saigon in late 1966. And it was December and he heard about uh, mercenaries fighting in the Congo and they were making a lot of money to do it. And he was a, a sergeant first class at, at that point and making decent pay, but not enough for him because he was so good at what he did. He wanted to go make more money being a soldier. So not having any real patriotic ties, he just decided to leave Vietnam on his own. He basically went AWOL, uh, deserted Vietnam, goes, finds his way back to the United States, uh, stays over the Christmas holiday in, in, in January, and he makes his way over to England. And he's making, and finally finds himself over in, uh, in Belgium. And he goes to a hotel where he's going uh, to find this recruiter for, uh, for mercenaries that fight in the Congo. And that's where he was told that they could be at a certain hotel in uh, Belgium. So he finally winds up meeting this guy. He was going to join one group. It turns into another. He finds up joining a group called the Five Commando, which was famous for having a commander named um, Mike Hoare. He was called Mad, Mad Mike Hoare, an Irish guy. But uh, Hoare was already gone uh, at that point. A new guy took over named Ralph Peters. And so Braden makes it to the Congo. He goes through all their tests. He's under assume, an assumed name when he gets there. Uh, of a Canadian guy that was a special forces in Vietnam that had been killed in a mortar attack, uh, a premature mortar attack that uh, malfunctioned on the guy. So he used this name and his name was Edward uh, Horner. And uh, so he's fighting in the Congo under five commando under the name uh, Edward Horner. So uh, somehow the CIA finds out that Braden is down there, an American. I don't know who turned him in, but one of his own, his own people. I think it was Colonel Ralph Peters, he thought, turned him in. So CIA catches up with Braden at a hotel. Five guys come out of a, uh, out of a dark hallway, put, put guns to his head and saying, uh, you're coming back with us. You know, we know who you are. And they interrogate him. They take him to a, a hotel room and strip him down to a bed and they interrogate him. You know, what's your name? Uh, what have you done over here? When did you leave Vietnam? All this kind of thing for for three days. Well, they finally whisk him into a car, take him to an airport and fly him back to the United States. And he gets back to the United States and they, uh, he's now a prisoner at Fort Dix military base in New Jersey. And that's where he runs into a guy named, uh, it was at the time, Captain Hank Birch. And thank God I know Hank Birch and Hank Birch had his story out there because after he met Ted Braden, he was in charge of Ted Braden while he was in confinement at Fort Dix. And when uh, Hank Birch met him, you know, like watching over him, uh, he became fascinated with him because he immediately saw irregularities involving this guy. He was uh, in his jail cell at Fort Dix and he had a TV in his cell. He said, this is unheard of in a military uh, brig. The guy had a TV. He said he had filtered tip cigars and anything with a filter was strictly forbidden at Fort Dix because uh, prisoners would use the filters to jam up the toilets and just make all kind of trouble. 
but Braden had TV. Like I said, he had filter tip cigars. He, um, had his clothes look perfect all the time. That's one thing about Ted Braden. He was extremely conscious about how he looked. And I've always been told by people that knew him, if you saw Ted Braden outside of anywhere else, you would assume he was either a college professor or a colonel because he took such care of his physical appearance and his clothes and how he looked. And he spoke really well. He was highly intelligent and he spoke that way. He was kind of soft-spoken, but he always thought about what he was going to say before he said it. So there was always like this, pausing when you would ask him a question or he would say something there was always this pause because he was trying to say the the right things at all times very very measured in his speech but anyway um so he's at fort Dix, and he's obviously there because he deserted the vietnam war this is a pretty serious charge um and that's what he's there for not for fighting in the congo but for the first charge of going awol in vietnam so it comes the day that they're going to hold a, a court martial for Braden. And uh, it's, I think, t- two hours before they actually hold the court hearing there at, on base. And before it happens, a phone call comes in from a guy. Uh, his name was um, Harold Johnson, and he was the, the chief of staff of the entire U.S. Army. He was the highest ranking active member of the U.S. Army. Calls to intervene on Ted Braden's behalf and says, uh, we're not going to be having that court martial today for Ted Braden. People are like, what? And he goes, what's the reason? And the reason given was there was not enough MPs on base to secure the courtroom. And Hank was there at the time and said, are you kidding me? This is Fort Dix. This place is crawling with MPs. You could look out the window and see 20 of them. This was such a contrived joke. And they couldn't believe this. The highest ranking guy in the army uh, was calling to intervene for this guy. So they wound up not having the court martial and they offer Braden a general discharge. He's wanted for desertion. I mean, uh, and they give him a general discharge. This is insane. And, uh, he also gets in an argument over a special wristwatch. Braden balks at taking the general discharge and says, I'm not going to take this deal unless you give me my watch back. And I don't know how special this watch was, but he was literally holding out to get a watch back. I don't know if it was sentimental or what it could do, but anyway, he balked, but originally, you know, winds up taking the general and and then he had to promise never to join the U S military again. And when they lined up to, to leave, they're basically being released. You would always line up in order of your rank. Like if you were a captain or, or, you know, that higher rank and then the privates or or corporals would be behind you. They lined up Braden ahead of people with far higher ranks when he was released. So he's getting special treatment from somewhere like he did in Vietnam still here at Fort Dix. So he gets basically released, general discharge, don't ever join the Army again. And there goes Braden from from uh, military confinement. And what year was that? What year did he get let out of the uh, uh, jail, Fort Dix? 19, that was 1967. 67. So then he gets out, and does he do the Golden Arrows after he gets out of jail? No. Okay, so it's before... No. And then he starts driving a truck, but he also kind of had, he still kind of was engaging in criminality even yes. after getting out of jail, right? Now. Right. So his, his whereabouts right after he's uh, uh, let out are, are, are not known. It's almost like they've been scrubbed. I mean, you can't find it. You know, this is a guy that they don't want you to know about. Uh, he winds up in the later part of 1967 in September, a magazine called Ramparts uh, publishes an article about Ted Braden. Very interesting. And he's talking about his time uh, fighting as a mercenary soldier. And I'll read the, the first part of that this, real quick. It says, uh, and it, it, it reads like an advertisement. That's why it's so interesting. But it, it's, uh, 
it had a picture of John Lennon on the cover, but it says it, it's like a true ad because Brayton's still looking for work. And it mm-hmm. says mercenary soldier, 14 years military service available for position immediately. Qualifications, 101st Airborne Division, World War II, Master Parachutist, 911 log jumps, including 695 free falls. Ex-Lieutenant, ex-Sergeant, U.S. Army, operated in four countries in Southeast Asia and two in Africa. Experience in the use of weapons, demolition, demolitions, sabotage, infiltration, especially as training and directing hunter-killer teams. 23 months of jungle experience. And uh, it reads like an ad. That's what, It was a real ad that was in the San Francisco Chronicle that he's talking about. And um, the article was written by the military director of Ramparts, which was Donald Duncan, an ex-Special Forces soldier who knew Braden from Vietnam, who was now anti-war, covering you know Braden's experience as a mercenary. So fascinating. So nothing's really known from Braden until the early part of the 1970s, where he is a truck driver and he's committing these kind of strange crimes. Uh, as a truck driver, he's leaving his uh, his truck uh, to be stolen because there's a bunch of goods in it, and he's arranging for this. And then one time he got caught for stealing a bunch of uh, meat and fish from a warehouse, and uh, he gets pulled over for drunk driving when he's when he uh, at one point, and he won't give you know he won't tell the police what his name is, he won't give him his driver's license, he just won't cooperate at all. So he did have a criminal record for sure. Uh, that was after the Cooper event right and he had kind of like also a sketchy personal life he was married a couple or three times but the first and second wives didn't know of his earlier uh relationships right right do you remember anything like that yeah but he also um there were after he or who i mean after this whole db cooper event there were like 14 or 15 copycats right or attempted copycats uh, you know, there were some smaller cases of, of, of copycats that really didn't go far. Uh, you know, the most notable was a guy named uh, Richard McCoy, who pulled off a similar skyjacking that D.B. Cooper did about five months after the Cooper skyjacking. Uh, he was from Utah. He, you know, real, you know, uh, definitely would have been inspired by Cooper. Some people think that uh, Richard McCoy was D.B. Cooper. I don't personally uh, but he did uh, get away with stealing more money. He actually did a $500,000 ransom just about five or so months after Cooper and uh, made it. But he bragged a lot about, you know, he bragged ahead of time that he was going to do it and asking questions. He had a friend that was uh, a Utah uh, state trooper that he told about it. And they quickly apprehended him and got almost all the money back, all, all half a million dollars other than like $6 that he bought a, a meal and a milkshake for. So he quickly got got caught. Uh, but he was the most famous copycat was uh, Richard Floyd McCoy. And, but there, I mean, there's other investigators and they've kind of gone through some of these copycats or other people who are capable of it. But uh, do you think that what, I mean, you talked to Braden's stepdaughter and she said that he was, he was Cooper, right? Well, yeah, I did. I, I was really fortunate to get a hold of her and it wasn't easy because I think, uh, you know, they had probably been approached by people in the past. She has uh, three older sisters, which probably would have had even better memories at the time. But I was fortunate to talk to the youngest stepdaughter of Braden's, who was living with him at the time of the Cooper skyjacking. So uh, he was definitely gone from home a lot. So this guy was definitely not home on for Thanksgiving of 1971. And I said, well, what do you remember about that time mostly? And she said, well, we had a lot of money. And I never understood why, because he was a long haul truck driver. 
Uh, he drove a newer model Mercedes Benz, which Dad Braden loved Mercedes. That's all he would ever drive. He had one when he was in Europe. Um, her mother, who was Braden's third wife, her name was uh, Pauline. She had a newer model Mercedes Benz, and they lived in a penthouse apartment in, in downtown Chicago. And she wondered how they that, and her mother wasn't working at the time either, so it's not like they even had a double income. And she always wondered how he was able to afford all that. Now it could have been because he was pulling off some heist too with his with his uh, you know his scams with his trucking thing, but he always did seem to have money, and it and it, and it stuck out to her. And actually, her mother. Um, she asked her mother point blank one day was Ted DB Cooper. And her mom said, looked at her and, and very as seriously. She could do, say and say, yes, he was. But the caveat to that was she was in the early stages of Alzheimer's disease. Uh, unfortunately. And I said, asked the daughter, do you, do you think she was telling the truth or was lucid enough to mean it? She said, yeah, I do. But I have to preface it with, she had early stages of Alzheimer's, unfortunately. Right. But she said for many years, the FBI was calling on them. And they, they, um, he also kind of had distinguishing characteristics of what this woman, Tina Mucklow, saw on the plane, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Tina Mucklow said he was a gentleman. Despite the FBI trying to say that he was a bad guy or some of the people like, uh, I think it was Ralph Himmelspock, one of the earlier investigators would say, oh, he's just a, he's a thug. He's a bad guy. Uh, Tina Mucklow said he was a perfect gentleman and, uh, he didn't cuss. He was always calm. Uh, and, uh, you know, it was, it, was, it was just extremely calm that when he was going to jump out of a 727 into bad weather at night, uh, which tells you this person was extremely trained. But anyway, uh, going back to the politeness, I was told by uh, Al Tire, who was Braden's jumping partner in the Golden Arrows in the early 60s, he said, one thing I would never forget about Ted Braden was how he treated women. He treated women with the utmost respect, other than being on his third wife, of course. But he said if a woman walked into the a room, like at a bar or any type of room, uh, Braden would immediately stand up. And if you didn't stand up too, he would get all over you. And Al said, I remember one time a woman walked into a room, Ted stood up, and I didn't. And I'll never hear, you know, I never heard the end of it. He said, you, bet, you better never let that happen again, Al, in my presence. When a woman stand, comes into the room, you stand up immediately. It was one of the things you'd never forget about Ted Braden, and that really fits in with Tina. Um, also, of course, Tina Mucklow spent the most time with D.B. Cooper, and when she talked about his accent, she said he really didn't have a discernible accent, and she thought it was from possibly because he was from the Midwest. Well, Braden was from Ohio. Uh, can't get any more Midwest than that. So he had so many things going for him, uh, just from what Tina described. Um, just fit right. He had in. kind of like a neck. I mean, his face does look like it too, like the same kind of drawing. People call it what the Cosby drawing, but he, he definitely had certain characteristics. Of he he definitely did. He did for for the, all the people that saw DB Cooper that were on that flight that were interviewed with the FBI after the skyjacking took place. Cause remember none of the passengers knew it was going on. They were already off the plane and, and into the airport when the uh, FBI intercepted him and said, uh, your plane was, was being, is, was being hijacked or it's being hijacked. Now the one you just got off of not one passenger had a clue that it was being hijacked. Uh, but for any passenger that says, could you remember the guy in the back or whatever, for everyone that said they could remember him, they all had one distinguishing feature that that, that that was the most prevailing of all those people. And it was that he was swarthy or was dark complected. They said he was a white male, but he had dark skin. So when I uncovered a picture of Braid from 1975 sitting next to his mother, I almost jumped out of my seat. I was like, man, he's got that really dark skin. 
Uh, and especially you can tell because he's next to his mother, who's, you know, very pale. So uh, he definitely had that feature going for him. He also had what's known as a turkey neck. And that's important because uh, a college student that was on the flight named Bill Mitchell was taking the most critical look at D.B. Cooper because he was jealous of him. Uh, Bill Mitchell was uh, a 20-year-old college student on that flight, and he was sitting just adjacent from D.B. Cooper. And he remembers looking at D.B. Cooper thinking, why are these stewardesses making a fuss over this older guy? Remember, all the, all, most of the eyewitnesses put D.B. Cooper as middle age. Ted Braden was 44 years old at the time of the skyjacking. But Bill Mitchell's looking at him like, why are these, you know, I'm a, I'm a this handsome, tall uh, college student. And these are young, you know, early 20s uh, flight attendants and, and they're attractive. Why are they fawning over this old guy and not even paying me attention? So he was jealous. And he remembered that D.B. Cooper had this sagging chin. And he told the FBI that as soon as he was interviewed and the FBI wrote it down, they put sagging chin and spilled drink. Bill Mitchell remembered that. And uh, that's a critical thing to have. I mean, uh, because it's a genuine description from a guy that didn't forget because he was jealous. So that always stood out to me. And also like this, the conduct of the caper itself never had any physical violence. So it's not like somebody panicked and had to punch somebody or engage in, it was such a controlled thing. You would have to think this person first timer, because when you compare him to other possible suspects who are much younger or first time criminals, they just act in a, in a panicky way right? Uh, when you compare it. So it's like this guy either is involved in other criminal or, you know, this kind of Rambo special ops thing where everything's right. placed out in time, which you had to do to, have to pull it off successfully. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. Uh, you know, another going back to Richard Floyd McCoy, who did pull off a similar skyjacking. Uh, that's why if anyone ever thinks that he makes a good TV Cooper suspect, he really doesn't, not just because he looks absolutely nothing like any of the sketches, but his skyjacking, and there's there's really there's a great detailed article about what happened to him. He left his notes, his, his, his uh, hijack instructions in the waiting room at the airport. One of the uh, people working for the airport had to go onto the plane and say, hey, did anybody leave this? And McCoy got out of the bathroom and saw the guy waving it, and he said, that's mine. He had to quickly claim it because if they had opened the envelope, uh, it, it was over. You know, mm-hmm. what a huge mistake. D.B. Cooper would have never made that mistake. He asked for the written notes back. He did everything by the book, never panicked. He was totally calm. And going back to Richard McCoy, he was he was putting on makeup in the bathroom of his skyjacking, and he immediately called attention to himself uh, when he sat back down in his chair. So he had to wind up doing his thing almost immediately because he was, he was so nervous. And Richard Floyd McCoy was, he was briefly a Green Beret in Vietnam, but he was more of an accomplished uh, helicopter pilot in Vietnam. And uh, he won a Silver Star. I mean, just short, just short of a Medal of Honor for one action that McCoy took over there. So here's a guy that's pretty well trained, too. Uh, Green Beret, Vietnam, uh, really high intense stress as a, high, a helicopter pilot. And he's nervous during his skyjacking. It just shows you that Braden is in another class. Even for special forces, he's in another class. That's why the, the, the legends of special forces in Vietnam have always pointed to Ted Braden as D.B. Cooper because they didn't say they would act like we don't have any special knowledge, but of any of our into our ranks that would have done this, that would have been smart enough to do it and had the skills to do it. It was Ted B. Braden. They never give you a number two choice. They never say it could have been Ted Braden and uh, Bill, Bill Smith, or they never give you another name. It's always right. Braden because he, he was in another league. 
Right. I mean, and probably killed, what'd you say, the average SOG person killed an average of 158 people or something? Oh, so yes. he probably didn't have to Absolutely. do it. Absolutely. Just didn't feel like he had to engage in physical violence. He just went through. No. It seems like he's a good fit. Oh, he's um, perfect. Yeah. So, Drew, is there anything I missed? Anything you'd like to add before we wrap this up? Can you tell people about your social media or where they can find the book? Sure. Uh, all the books on Amazon.com and uh, on Instagram. It's Drew Hurstbeeson and then the YouTube channel. A lot of this stuff's on YouTube. So, uh, if you look for the DB Cooper stuff, uh, it's all on my YouTube channel. A lot of what's in the book is on there for free. If you don't like books, I know a lot of people don't. So, a lot of it are in the videos. You can definitely check it out there. And it's your YouTube channel again is Drew Beeson, B E E S O N, correct? Correct. And then it's also on YouTube. Again, the title of the book is Paratrooper of Fortune The Story of Ted B. Braden, Vietnam Commando, CIA Operative, Congo Mercenary, and just maybe DB Cooper by Drew Beeson. Drew, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you. Appreciate it, William. All right. Take care. Have a great weekend. You too. All right. Bye.